The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, there we are. Okay, good morning everyone. Uh, and uh, welcome back again. Let's uh, carry on where we left off yesterday. So, uh, just to remind you, we're looking at the uh, Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the Noble Search, uh, and we have been looking at a kind of the establishing of right view uh, and how the Buddha to be saw the world and what actually made him go forth, what made him become uh, a monk, and then later on, of course, the Buddha. Uh, so, we have had a look at these things. Now, we're going to uh, look at how the what happened uh, at that time uh, just before he went forth and actually what uh, how he became a monk that's kind of coming up next here yeah. so um, this is what the uh, Buddha has to say he says mendicants before my awakening uh, when I was still unawakened uh, but intent on awakening uh, I too, being liable to be reborn, sought what is also liable to be reborn. Myself liable to grow old, to fall sick, to die, to sorrow, to become corrupted, I sought what is also liable to these things. Then it occurred to me, why do I, being liable to all these things, seek things that have the same nature? Why don't I seek the freedom from birth, freedom from old age, freedom from sickness, freedom from dying, freedom from sorrow, freedom from corruption, uh, sanct uh, supreme sanctuary, uh, extinguishment. So, um, uh, so the Buddha is now embarking on the noble search. Uh, yeah, and before his awakening, this was what he thought. So these are the drivers uh, that made the Buddha set out in search of awakening. Yeah. And uh, that in itself is very interesting. Yeah. yeah, Because sometimes we think of the Buddha in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, but what you see here, there's some very simple realities of life. Realities that we all can relate to uh, uh, to some extent. Uh, yeah, These are the things that made the Buddha go forth. Uh, and you will notice, of course, there's nothing here about having compassion for the whole world, etc. And um, which is kind of makes sense, yeah, because uh, first of all, you want to find out whether there is a solution to the problems of life. And then, uh, if there is a solution, of course, then compassion will arise because then you know that you have the ability to help other people. Uh, so, this kind of, to me, is more logical and it, this is what you find throughout the suttas the compassion arises after the awakening here yeah. uh, when the buddha realizes that he actually has a teaching that may be able to help uh, all of humanity here yeah. so uh, simple things that make you go forth right contemplation of dying of old age of sickness uh, etc yeah. these are very powerful contemplation yeah. contemplations these are the things that created the buddha in the world uh, that's kind of extraordinary here. Yeah. The reason why we have the Dhamma now, the reason why we have these teachings, the reason why Buddhism is still available in the world uh, is because one person contemplating death uh, in a very profound way. Yeah. That's kind of uh, extraordinary. It shows you the um, potential for insight and for changing our view and for understanding the world in a different way by contemplating something which seems so ordinary, yeah, but at the same time is very profound because we don't 
take it on board properly. We don't fully appreciate what is going on with these things. Uh, so uh, that's kind of uh, in itself very interesting and kind of encouraging, right? Because it means that uh, the path does not seem so impossible anymore. Uh, things that we have to do are fairly straightforward. Uh. But um, so what he says here, and just starting at the beginning, which is also interesting, he says, when I was still unawakened but intent on awakening, and the word intent on awakening is bodhisattva. And usually it is not translated, or usually it is turned into its Sanskrit form even, so it's like changed from bodhisattva to bodhisattva. <laughs> and of course that brings with it all the ideas that you find in the Mahayana tradition and the Sanskrit tradition, all the ideas about the bodhisattvas and the, all the practices they did and the, uh, you know, the, the um, determination they made under the previous Buddhas and all of this kind of mythology of the bodhisattva comes into that uh, without whether you want to or not, it just awakens a certain perception in you. Uh, but when you change the translation to intent on awakening, uh, and which I think is a perfectly valid translation of the word bodhisattva. Often it is translated into English as something like awakening being or enlightenment being, which is a strange word, enlightenment being. <laughs> what does that actually mean even, enlightenment being? It's, it's kind of a weird word, whereas intent on awakening makes very good sense. And of course, the time when the Buddha-to-be is intent on awakening is when he goes forth, yeah? when he goes forth from the home life, at that moment uh, he is a bodhisattva, because from that moment onwards uh, he is intent on awakening. Yeah? So the bodhisattva, instead of being this kind of long period of four incalculable eons, uh, the bodhisattva period is from the time the Buddha goes forth from the home life uh, until he finds his awakening. That is the bodhisattva period. Uh, so usually, in, according to tradition, the Buddha went forth when he was 29 and he became awakened when he was 35. So it's like a six-year period. So we're kind of shrinking it from four incalculable eons down to six years. Yeah? <laughs> That's kind of interesting, isn't it? It changes your understanding of these things and it kind of makes the whole thing more natural, more understandable, more kind of common sense, uh, common sensible or whatever the right word is. Uh, so that is already quite, to my mind, quite interesting. And I, I like to make these things more natural because then we can relate to them. Uh, and I think this is important. And this is what we see in the suttas. Uh, so now the next thing he says is that being liable to be reborn, uh, I sought also what is liable to be reborn. Uh, yeah, I remember just before uh, the idea of seeking. The Buddha has defined seeking as being attached to things. Uh, being intoxicated by things, being, um, uh, what, what are the words that are used there again uh, for seeking, attaching, uh, infatuated, uh, and tied to things, right? Uh, so what the, Buddha to, what the Buddha is saying here is that before his awakening, he too was attached, uh, he too was tied, uh, he too was infatuated with things in the world, uh, right? Just like we are attached to the people around us, uh, and he, he also had these attachments to his wife, uh, his son, uh, yeah, his, uh, uh, maybe to his um, property or whatever it was, uh, because we all have that to some extent, as long as we live that kind of life, because that's what that life is about, uh, the lay life, the life of, that's why we stay in that life. So again, it kind of brings us closer to the Buddha, it humanizes the Buddha. Uh, he had the same issues, and because he had the same issues, uh, 
the solution that he was seeking here is also fully relevant to us. Yeah, same kind of things again. And so this is how the Buddha is portrayed in the suttas. And you will start to see, as the more you look into this, and the more you start to see how the Buddha is portrayed really in sutta after sutta, you see that there is a big gap between the Buddha mythology and the Buddha legend and the reality as to how the Buddha presents himself in the suttas. There's a big gap there, and I think it's very useful to bring our attention back to how the suttas present the Buddha. It's a much more realistic view, and that realistic view is actually very encouraging and very useful, and it makes the Buddhist teaching come alive in a new way once you understand these things rightly. And then he says, it occurred to me, why do I, being liable to reborn, why am I seeking all of these things? Now there is a little point there that I just want to make because it's kind of, it, I think it's interesting in a broader kind of context. You will notice the Buddha here, he's saying, it occurred to me being liable to be reborn. In other words, the Buddha-to-be already had the idea of rebirth. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting because doesn't that mean that he's taking on board the ideas from that society. It is kind of accepting those ideas without really investigating. Because this is the argument that is made sometimes by people, that rebirth is not really necessary in Buddhism, because the Buddha-to-be, he just took on these ideas from the existing society. And that is what it seems like here, here right? It seems like the Buddha is, the Buddha is already assuming the idea of rebirth. That seems to be the point here. But you know, I have always argued that, well, actually, the Buddha is someone who investigates. He looks into things. He doesn't just accept things randomly from the existing society. Or he exists. Of course, he accepts many things. He accepts the language. He accepts the customs. But, but in terms of philosophy, in terms of religion, in terms of insight, in terms of understanding the world, he's someone who investigates, right? So which, which one is it? Does he take it on board from society or does he investigate and when you read the suttas, what you find out is that both are true. And this is what is interesting. The reality is always much more complex than any kind of theory. So in the beginning, when the Buddha starts out, of course, he is also conditioned by the ideas in that society. And rebirth, karma, these things were already accepted outlooks at that time. So he would have, that would have been part of his worldview at that time. So it would, be, would have been an assumption that he made. But then, as he started to practice the path, and he started to try to uncover the nature of reality, then he would also have investigated it down the track, yeah, to get insight into these things. Because one of the things about the Buddha, the way he comes across in the suttas, is that he always investigates. He always checks things out for himself. He doesn't just accept things. He may accept things and investigate, but he doesn't just accept things as they are, especially if they are of spiritual significance. And in this way, we get a kind of more nuanced idea of the Buddha. Yeah? He is someone who does accept some of the existing realities, but he also investigates. And I think that is the right way of thinking about the Buddha uh, to be here. And then, you, uh, then this makes sense, and also it makes sense, the idea of awakening. One of the things that the Buddha did awaken to 
is precisely rebirth, right? This is the Tevija, the three insights, the three knowledges that he had on the night of his awakening. One of those is the insight into rebirth. So obviously it is something that he investigated for himself. So anyway, so then he says all of these things. Yeah, I have these problems. I get reborn. I get old. I get sick. So maybe I should seek the freedom from these things. Again, Unborn, I think, is not ideal translation. The freedom from birth, the freedom from old age, the freedom from sickness, the freedom from death, the freedom from sorrow, the freedom from corruption. Maybe this is what I should seek. And um, this is sort of, uh, this is the power of the Buddha. Yeah, The power of the Buddha is someone who dares seek for the unthinkable. Most people think it's crazy to seek for the freedom from death. What does that mean, even, freedom from death? It seems kind of really weird, right? Uh, so uh, this is kind of the power of the Buddha, this kind of incredible, I suppose, confidence uh, in his own abilities, the confidence that if this can be found, well, it is really, really worthwhile. Uh, I'm going to spend my entire life seeking this if it is possible. If it isn't possible, so be it. Uh, but it is so important. It is worthwhile spending my rest of the life trying to find a solution uh, and of course, that ancient Indian society, it already had many aspects to it that pointed in that direction. It was a society where, where ascetics and people on the spiritual path were very valued. You would go into the local village and you would get alms food, just like you do in many Asian countries today. And there were lots of people already pursuing these things. And so it was easier, right? And if you go to a modern society, like, like modern Australian society, it is much more, you know, finding a random Australian on the street and say, well, are you going to go forth to seek the deathless? And I think you're completely nuts, right? What are you talking about? <laughs> and that is because our whole society is not geared towards that. We don't think in those terms. Whereas in Indian society, they were already thinking in those terms. And that made it possible for the Buddha to go forth, yeah, because there was already a lot of impetus in that direction. And I, I've always wondered about this. There are some strange things in the suttas. One of the strange things in there is that the idea that the Buddha is always born in India. Right? So past Buddhas were also born in India. Even though they existed eons ago, they were born in India. But did India exist eons ago? <laughs> Does it make any sense to think about that? When there was a different planet, it was a different universe. How can we talk about India? India we have now, right? And I think, to me, the answer is that... Uh, the kind of society that allows a Buddha to arise uh, will have certain characteristics. Uh, and it will have the characteristics of people appreciating monasticism, appreciating ascetics. Uh, it will have a society where people are already practicing a certain path, uh, where they are already achieving samadhi. Uh, so the gap uh, between where we are and enlightenment is much less in that kind of society. Huh? Yeah, there's only a little bit that you have to do and then you reach awakening. Yeah? Whereas in modern Australian society, the gap is kind of too large. Yeah, you can't bridge that gap. Uh, unless you're part of the BSV, of course, that's, that's a different thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the gap is much smaller. <laughs> but in general, that's true, right? Of many, many societies in our world, uh, it's just too hard. Uh, that's how I understand this idea that you have to be reborn in India. In other words, you have to be reborn in a society that is roughly similar to what you find in the Indian, kind of the traditional Indian society here. So the Buddha 
goes forth. Yeah? And this is kind of what is so powerful about the Buddha, that he has this incredible kind of confidence. He sees the importance of this. He's willing to spend his whole life seeking a solution to something that may not even have a solution. And that's kind of extraordinary. This is what makes the Buddha special. It is not that he is entirely different from us, but that he has this confidence in his abilities and his willingness to do what seems impossible. And so then, sometime later, while still black-haired, blessed with youth in the prime of life, though my mother and father wished otherwise, weeping with tearful faces, I shaved off my hair and beard, dressed in ochre robes, and went forth from the lay life to homelessness. So he goes forth, he's still young, yeah, black-haired, blessed with youth in the prime of life. And of course that is the ideal in Buddhism, is to go forth while you are reasonably young. You have more energy, more ability to practice these teachings. Um, so uh, if someone wants to go forth when they're young, you should say, good on you, carry on, get on, <laughs> get on with it. Uh, and because it is, uh, that is when you have the best opportunity to do these things. Uh, and then you have this very interesting little phrase here, though my mother and father wished otherwise, uh, weeping with tearful faces. Uh, and this is a nice little reminder that the Buddha was not... Uh, uh, he was not. Uh, he, he was responsible. He was not irresponsible. Uh, if you read the traditional uh, biography of the Buddha, it's not really a biography at all. The traditional legend of the Buddha. Yeah, he leaves in the middle of the night. Yeah, his kind of his wife and son are sleeping, yeah, and he kind of rides off into the, uh, you know, the Kantaka, the horse, and he kind of this enormous capital rides through and goes off into the forest. And it seems kind of, uh, it seems irresponsible. Uh, and many people have pointed this out. The Buddha is irresponsible. What kind of person are you, you know, following? You know, he, he can't do this kind of thing. But so the reality turns out to be different. This, again, is the power of coming back to the suttas rather than just following the traditional ideas of Buddhism. And according to this, his parents were weeping. They wished otherwise. So obviously, they had to have a discussion about it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a chance to express their wish. <laughs> their wish... So they had a discussion, uh, and he would have told them, I want to go forth, uh, I want to seek uh, the deathless, the freedom from death, the freedom from suffering. Uh. And because the, they had this discussion, uh, he would have ensured that his wife or his, and his child were looked after, right? This would have been part of that discussion, obviously. Uh. And anyway, they lived in these large families anyway, they were all part of the same household, so it was obvious that they would have been looked after. Uh. It wouldn't really be an issue uh. So the reality, as often is the case between the legend and what we find in the suttas, is actually quite different. And this is one of the benefits of reading the suttas. One of the things that I always find when I talk with people who have grown up in a, a traditional Buddhist country, very often the teachings, the things that they know about is the legendary things. It is the Jataka tales, it is the Dhammapada Atakata. And these things are often very beautiful and often very meaningful and very useful. So I'm not going to say that they are bad or anything, but sometimes they can lead you astray. And sometimes they give you ideas that are not actually in line with how the suttas teach things. And this is one of the reasons why it's so useful to come back to the suttas and get a clarity about what is going on. And yes, we can use the Jataka tale sometimes, 
Sometimes you can't use them at all. Sometimes they are directly immoral, right? Some of the things they do are kind of the Buddha to be giving up his wife and children to some evil Brahmin. This, this is the Vesantara Jataka, the kind of one of the biggest Jatakas that is kind of used all out the Buddhist world, and it's not even Buddhist. <laughs> Isn't that weird? How sometimes we kind of we get trapped in these things that are really dodgy. <laughs> so. Uh, so this is why it is useful to, yes, we can sometimes be inspired by some of these stories because sometimes they are beautiful and very often they are in line with Buddhism. Not always, uh, but uh, come back a little bit from that. Uh, come away from those things that are uh, uncertain to those things that are far more certain, which is what you find in the suttas. Uh. So, mother and father wished otherwise, and then he shaves off his hair, hair and beard. He's becoming a monk. Yeah? He dresses in ochre robes. He dresses like a monk. And he goes forth from the lay life to homelessness. So, right view leading to right intention. Yeah? This is the renunciation, the nekama sankapa that you find here. So, um, there you are. The the right view of the Buddha. And uh, I'm not going to stop with the right view there. There's much, much more to be said about right view. Right view can be expanded on almost endlessly uh, because this, it is so much part of what the path is about at the beginning. Uh, so I'm going to carry on with a bit more right view. And this is uh, this next suit as one that I've been doing quite a bit recently. I think I did it here last year as well. Uh, it is called the Atadanda Sutta. It's from the Sutta Nipata. And uh, uh, it is another aspect of the idea of right view that I want to talk about here. And this is more like seeing society in a clear way, what the world really is like. And uh, that clarity about seeing the world in the right way, of course, also uh, is in particular the impermanence of the world, the dukkha in the world, these kind of things, uh, will also lead you to seeking happiness somewhere else. Uh, and this is what all of this is about, looking for happiness in the right place. Uh, the problem for humanity is that we tend to look for happiness, freedom of suffering, uh, contentment, uh, satisfaction in the wrong place. And because we look, at it, look for it in the wrong place, we can't get it. Uh, so all of these things are geared towards changing your attitude to where you should look for these things. Uh, that is kind of the point of all of this. Uh, so again, it's not to make you depressed uh, <laughs> about reality, but actually to change your direction or where you seek for fulfillment in life. Uh, so atta danda. Danda is like stick or punishment or weapons. Uh, yeah, danda. And atta here means to take up. It does not mean the self, it means to take up. So taking up of punishment and weapons. Uh, so I'll read it out first of all and come back and comment on it afterwards. Uh, the most important part here is the five verses that come first. These are really what the right view part is about. Uh, so this is what the Buddha says. Uh, Peril stems from those who take up arms. Uh, just look at people in conflict. I shall extol how I came to be stirred with a sense of urgency here. Uh, I saw this population flounder uh, like fish in a little puddle. Uh. Seeing them fight each other, fear came upon me. Uh. The world around was hollow. All directions were in turmoil. Uh. Wanting a home for myself, uh, I saw nowhere unsettled. Uh. Yet even in their settlement they fight. Uh. Seeing that, I grew uneasy. Uh. 
Then I saw a dart there, so hard to see, stuck in the heart. When stuck by that dart, you run around in all directions. But when that same heart, dart, sorry, has been plucked out, you neither run around nor sink down. So that is the right view. And after that comes the practice, and then comes the result of the practice at the very end of this long poem. But that is the initial, the impetus that leads to the Buddha's practicing, right? This is the right view. And uh, one of the things that you see straight away there, you, you see the Buddha says that fear came upon me. He says that he grew uneasy. I can't remember what the Pali is there, but I think uneasy, I think arati is the word actually. And it means like you you no longer delight in the world. You lose your delight. You become discontent with the world. In other words, you are kind of heading, moving in a different direction suddenly. I think arati is the Pali there. And uneasy is a slightly unusual translation. Sorry about the Siddhartha, but it is a bit unusual to translate it that way. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, so again, we have this idea of the Buddha to be being um, a little bit like us. Yeah, sometimes you see things in the world, uh, you see the world going in a strange way. Uh, you see fighting breaking out, wars breaking out, uh, and you think that you're lucky to live in Australia because no wars in Australia. Well, there's no wars now in Australia, uh, but who knows what the future will bring? Uh, okay, we do live kind of a, in a kind of outpost of the world. Uh, but uh, still, uh, things are very uncertain. Uh, when you see the war in Ukraine, uh, remember, that is you. Uh, yeah? That is you experiencing that war because you have been there before uh, and you will go there again in the future. Uh, even if not in this lifetime, uh, guaranteed, uh, you will eventually be there. Uh, so don't feel that the war in Ukraine is separate from you. It is not separate from you. Uh, this is part of this nature of the human realm. These things always come back. They always return eventually. So when you look at the war, remember, you are also part of that war. It is also part of your reality. And then you start to become real. Don't other it. Don't make it different. Don't separate it from you. Because then you are deluded when you do that. And so the Buddha, when he sees the nature of that world, he sees, he doesn't see climate change, that's what we have now. He doesn't see all the present problems, the big political problems of the world, the large nations kind of saber-rattling with each other again, all the instability and uncertainty that we have. And even though he didn't see that, he saw the basic nature of society. Yeah, He saw that this is what society is like. In one sense, we have an advantage because... Now it is very clear, right? The kind of the big problems in the world are kind of very obvious in our age. And that means it is easier to see the downside. It is also easy to get depressed. But instead of getting depressed about it, take it as an impetus for practicing the spiritual life. Because that is the release. That is the way out of this predicament. The predicament is not to solve the problems of the world, because the problems of the world have always been the same. Yeah, this is why the Buddha has fear, the Buddha-to-be has fear coming upon him. That is why he grows uneasy. These things go in waves, they come and go, and there isn't any final solution to these problems. So there's only one thing to do, turn in a different direction. And that is where you find the solace, that's where you find the liberation from these things. But again, it humanizes the Buddha, right? Uh, the Buddha is a human being just like everyone else. Uh, and when he sees that, uh, he feels f fearful or he sees the danger in the world. Uh, that's kind of 
fascinating here. So why does he see that danger in the world? Uh, and uh, this is kind of starting from the beginning here. Uh, uh, peril stems from those who take up arms. Uh, yeah? The danger in society, uh, peril is here, baya. Baya means like danger or fear. Uh, and uh, look at the people in conflict. Uh, yeah? Whenever there is conflict in the world, uh, there is a tendency to take up arms. Uh, yeah? To do things, punishment and, uh, and all of these kind of things. Uh, this is what conflict tends to lead to. Uh, so is it possible to create a society uh, where there is no conflict? Uh, does such a society exist? Uh, it's like a utopian society. Uh, yeah, one of the definitions of utopia is the kind of the idea of eternal peace. Yeah. Is that possible? If you look at the history of humanity, we have this tendency to try to create utopias. Yeah, you look at the ideas such as Marxism or communism. You look at the regime of Pol Pot in Cambodia, one of the worst kind of regimes in, uh, in recent history. Where millions of people were killed in the name of creating a utopian society. And so we have this tendency, and, and this tendency comes from our sense of self, because the sense of self uh, is a solid thing, uh, that we per something we perceive to be solid. Uh, and because we perceive solidity in the world, we tend to project that idea of solidity onto our society. And so we think it is possible to create utopian societies, uh, because a utopian society is a society that is kind of permanent in a certain way. Uh, it doesn't change. It is the idea of peace forever after. There's a degree of permanence to that. And that idea of permanence comes from our idea, our sense of self. But from a Buddhist point of view, these things are impossible. There is no such thing as a utopian society because we have the idea of impermanence. Things are always changing, always moving to something else. And if you start to look at the suttas, one of the reasons why things are impermanent, uh, many reasons, one of them is again because of the sense of self. The sense of self is uh, not only does it think that things are permanent, but it also creates impermanence. It's kind of a weird, weird thing, isn't it? Uh, and the reason why it creates impermanence is because of the greed and delusion. Uh, we're never satisfied with the status quo. We're never satisfied with society as it actually is because we want more. We want a larger share of the pie. And so we go into the world and we destroy whatever system we have so that we can have more in our society. And we see this again and again. We see kind of how greed is undermining whatever social structures that we have, how, you know, Powerful vested interests take advantage of our, our uh, democratic institution to gain more power and then gradually undermining the idea of democracy. Uh, so it's guaranteed that the demo democracy is a transient phase, uh, just like, uh, just like uh, authoritarianism is a trans transient phase. All of these things are transient phases because they're all undermined by human defilements uh, rooted in the sense of self. Uh, there is no permanence. Permanence is impossible in the area of uh, uh, you know, peace or the area of social constructions, whatever it is, uh, is always going to be changeable. Uh, and this is kind of what this is about. Uh, and uh, so there's always going to be this idea of uh, trying to get more for yourself, trying to kind of move, uh, to, to do something, uh, to undermine the existing things. There is no stability. Uh, and so people in conflict 
one of the things that is going on here, one of the reasons that we are in conflict is precisely this idea of sense of self and desire in the world. One of the beautiful similes of the Buddha that I usually talk about in this context is a simile of the piece of meat. And this piece of meat kind of points, points to the problem here. And this simile is found in the Potalia Sutta, the 54 Sutta of the Majjhima And I talk about this on every retreat I teach. <laughs> and this is the idea of a bird that gets hold of a piece of meat. A piece of meat, very difficult to get hold of for birds. It's very attractive to a bird. Yeah, usually you have to eat worms and bugs and now we get hold of a piece of meat. It's really, really happy with that. But because a piece of meat is so valuable in the bird world, yeah, other birds will want the same piece of meat. So the bird picks up the piece of meat, flies off, other birds go after it. And often these are larger birds, these are kind of the hawks or herons, and maybe you are just a small little bird. And they go after you, and they try to rip that piece of meat out of your claws, out of your beak, because they want it too. What happens to that little bird? Well, what happens to that little bird if it doesn't let go of that piece of meat? Very likely it will die, yeah? Very likely it will just, because the other birds are stronger and bigger than it, uh, it will die, or at least it will suffer enormously by trying to hold on to that piece of meat. Uh. <laughs> Looking for a piece of meat, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> so the, uh, so this, this is the problem with the world yeah? and our human society is like that uh, we are all kind of looking for the same pieces of meat in our society yeah? we're looking for the same jobs uh, looking for the same houses uh, looking for the same partners in the world uh, and because all of these things are external to us uh, because all of this five sense world is something that we have in common uh, that we have to share somehow uh, that is why there's always going to be conflict in that world, because everyone wants more, and the, eco uh, the economic pie is only so large, uh, and because our greed and desire are endless, and that's kind of the reality, yeah, there's never going to be enough for everyone, because enough, there is no such thing as enough. Uh, there's always just more and more and more, greater and greater desires. Uh, and so that five-sense world, by definition, is always going to be a world of conflict. Uh, there is no alternative. Uh, and this is driven by the sense of self, ultimately, and then the desires and all those things that comes from that sense of self. And so, peril stems from those who take up arms, look at people in conflict. Conflict is, is kind of baked into our society. It is impossible to have a society completely without conflict. And this is when the Buddha-to-be gets stirred with a sense of urgency, because he's starting to realize this truth of our society. So what does it do? Well, that is when the intention to live in a different way, to go forth, to practice the spiritual path, becomes stronger, because that is the escape from these problems. And then he says, I saw the population flounder, like a fish in a little puddle. Yeah, the floundering, thrashing about, not really having anywhere to go because you're just in a little puddle. And our little puddle, what is that? Well, our little puddle is the five-sense realm. It is being reborn as a human. And it doesn't matter where you travel in this world. Wherever you travel in this world, you're not really going anywhere. It's still the five-sense realm. You travel to some foreign country, I don't know, you travel to Japan, or you travel to France, or you travel to 
uh, Sri Lanka or you travel to South America and you think, wow, really exciting, different cultures, different things. Uh, actually, it's all the same. <laughs> right? It's very, very similar because the human, deeper human desires, the deeper human things actually don't change all that much wherever you go in the world. Uh, yes, you get to eat slightly different food. Uh, it's not such a big deal, right? Uh, you get to see certain things that are a little bit different. Again, it's not such a big deal. Uh, you get to see a culture where people think a little bit different, but it's only superficially that they think different. Uh, human beings, we are all the same. Uh, it's really boring, right? Uh, there's nothing really all that interesting here. Uh, we're all a little bit greedy. We want more for ourselves. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone wants to, wants to be free of suffering. Uh, we are deep down. We are the same. And that's kind of what is also very in one hand, it is boring, but on the other hand, it also means that we can understand each other very well. We are not that different, right? It's not as if we have to protect Australian culture from foreign cultures or anything like that, because we are the same anyway. It's, that's kind of something very beautiful about that, because it means you can relate to other people. You can kind of forget about those tiny external differences that separate us. Those are irrelevant. It is the human heart, the human who we are beyond that, that really is important, then you can, we can understand each other, then we can live together in harmony here, because we see each other in a very different way. It is when we try to separate each other, divide each other up, be nationalist, yeah, my nation against your nation, or whatever it is, that is kind of a massive delusion. It creates some kind of essential essentiality to what it means to be Australian. This is the essential Australian character. We are essentially different from the neighbors, yeah, Indonesians or Kiwis, we are different from those, yeah, whatever it might be. But we're not. And this takes away so much of this ability of politicians to divide us. You can sometimes you see how the political world uses this idea of nationalism to, to, uh, to kind of to, uh, bring their agenda forward, yeah, and then to kind of use that to create a sense of us against them feeling, then people becoming nationalists, then building up armies and making people into tools of the government to create whatever they want to create. And that's why we willingly go into wars and all of these kind of things. But once you realize that actually this is just an illusion, that separation between people doesn't really exist. We are far more similar than we think we are. Not only are we similar in the sense that our deep characteristics are the same, but we have all been in, lived in all various cultures. We have all been all kinds of human beings in the past. And when you start to know, see that you have been this kind of person in the past, yeah, you have been the opposite gender, you have been handicapped, you have been living in this country, that culture, and all of these things are actually inside of you because you have been there already. And if you don't get out of this trouble we are in, you're going to be there in the future. And then when you do that, you start to see the humanity in the people around you. Because what you see, you see yourself in that person. That's kind of very powerful. Yeah, it's a very beautiful thing. Because then when you see yourself in the other person, it means that you can relate to them. You're making a human connection with everyone in the world. This is how we overcome conflict to some extent. Even though we can never overcome conflict completely, at least we can take some steps in the right direction. And that is very, very, very useful and powerful. So, um, so the Buddha to be, 
this is what he sees. Yeah, he sees the population flounder like fish in a little puddle. Our little puddle is the world that we live in, maybe the planet Earth or whatever. Yeah, that's our little puddle. And it is a small puddle in the sense that there is no escape in that world from the things that are worthy of escaping from. Everyone is thrashing about. Everyone has the same problems. The escape is found within, not without. And then seeing all of these people fight each other, then fear came upon the Buddha-to-be. Yeah? They can, again, you can see that the right view is arising, yeah? giving rise ultimately to right intention down the track. Yeah? The world is hollow. Yeah? All directions are in turmoil. Yeah? There is no solidity anywhere in the world. Yeah? There's nowhere to take a stand. There's nowhere where you can kind of feel you have a refuge in that world. There is no refuge in that world. There's nothing that really can be held on to. As soon as you start to hold on, it starts to shake. It starts to wriggle out of your grip because it is so unreliable and so uncertain. And for this reason, all directions are in turmoil. Yeah, always changing, always moving, always heading off in a new direction. Nothing is really worthy of being held on to. And then when you want to find a home for yourself, uh, actually there is nowhere that is not settled. Uh, settled by impermanence, settled by suffering, settled by non-self. Uh, everything is always changing and moving. Uh. And I think this is one of the, um, kind of again, the yearnings of all human beings, uh, is to find a home for yourself. Uh. What is a home? A home is a place where you feel safe. Uh. You lock the door, you kind of shut yourself off from the world, uh, and you kind of have your little place where you can feel at ease, you can sleep well at night, uh, you can kind of uh, have the, your entertainments, and you can do some meditation if you are a meditator, yeah? go to your little room and it has a nice lighting, a nice shrine, and everything feels kind of safe. Yeah? This is the idea of a home. A home is a place where you are, um, you feel good. And that's why it is so problematic. Someone asked the question yesterday, they were concerned about burglars. Of course, one of the problems of burglars, it makes your home not feel so safe anymore. That's very uncomfortable because the one place of refuge that we have suddenly doesn't feel like a refuge in the same way. And that's, that's why burglary or people invading your house can feel very uncomfortable for people. Um, and so then you start to realize that actually this illusion of my home being a refuge, uh, being a place where actually it is not entirely correct. Uh, there is a delusion to that. Uh, actually, the real refuge it must be found somewhere else. Uh, and the real refuge is found by withdrawing from that entire world. Uh, the real refuge is found in your meditation practice. Uh, the Buddha says this beautiful saying in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, where this is the greatest sutta on the Buddha's kind of final journey and the Buddha's, Buddha's final passing away. And this is where the Buddha gives a lot of beautiful instructions to the Sangha and to the lay people, explaining to them how they should live after his passing away. And one of the things that he says there, he says that uh, take ref taking refuge in the right place, uh, yeah, take refuge, uh, uh, take the Dhamma as your teaching, the Dhamma as your island, take yourself as a refuge, yourself as, a, as an island, uh, how do you do that? Atta Deepa Dhamma Deepa. How do you do that? And he says the way you do that is by practicing the four Satipatthanas. And the four Satipatthanas is like the breath meditation. That's what it is. So when you are doing the breath meditation, 
in the right way, of course, not just kind of in the wrong way, but when it really starts to work and it has some effect, you're starting to get some peace and joy and happiness in that meditation, which is kind of what it is meant to do. That is your refuge. Because that is an inner state within you. And this is a state that is independent of what happens in the world outside. No one can take that away from you. If you have access to meditation at any time, you can turn away from the world and you can turn within. And you can find that peace, that freedom from all the problems of the world right there within you. That is the real refuge. And the deeper you take that refuge, uh, the more powerful your meditation, uh, and eventually leading to the deep insights of what Buddhism is all about, or the reality is all about, uh, the deeper is that refuge as a consequence. Uh. So this is the real, this is the real deal. Uh. And um, uh, I remember Ajahn Shah had this beautiful saying, he was talking about your real home. What is your real home? Uh? And he said the real home is the deep meditations, uh, where you withdraw from the world, you go within yourself, uh, and you feel this incredible sense of being liberated from all the troubles of the world and this incredible inner freedom, uh, this feeling of not being afflicted by all of these things around you. Uh, this is a real refuge. You feel happy. You feel safe. Uh, you feel content. You feel all of these positive things that comes with this path towards liberation, to awakening. Uh, that is where the refuge is found. Uh, and this is such a beautiful thing. Uh, this is why you're attention, your aim, your purpose in life changes uh, because you start really to understand uh, what this life really is about, where to find true meaning uh, and where to avoid looking for true meaning here. Uh. So, then he says, even, yet even in the settlement uh, they fight, uh, seeing that I grew discontent or uneasy. Uh. So even if you try to settle down in a home or whatever, still the fighting may go on. Yeah, sometimes we have arguments within the family and these kind of things. Yeah, and if you don't fight, well, you fight with your neighbors, maybe I don't know what people do, but, you know, something like that happens. And seeing all of this, he grows discontent, not really content with the world anymore because it is problematic, yeah. And uh, then, uh, because he grew discontent, uh, he is now starting to look for the solution. Uh, yeah, so first of all, he sees the problem. Uh, then looking for the solution, what does he see? He sees the dart right there. Uh, the dart, which is so hard to see, stuck in the heart. And the dart in Buddhism, uh, the dart is just a, uh, is a um, simile for craving, uh, Right? Uh, craving uh, is the dart in the heart. Uh, and uh, that craving is what makes this whole round, all of these problems arise. Uh, that is why we fight in the world, as I mentioned before. It's, and the craving is turn is driven by the sense of self. Uh, the sense of self always more, wants more for it. Uh, for itself. The sense of self is never really satisfied. Uh, the sense of self wants to amass more in the world. Uh, no end to it. Uh, and uh, so that is the dart in the heart. That is the cause of the problem. Uh, and of course, you recognize here the Four Noble Truths. This is just another way of talking about the Four Noble Truths, right? Uh, first of all, you have the dukkha of the world. Uh, then you have the dart, which is the cause of that dukkha, which is the craving. Uh, it's just a different way of expressing the Four Noble Truths. Uh, and this is kind of one of the geniuses of the Buddha, this ability to see things from different ways. Uh, so you want to get rid of that dart. That's the only way to overcome suffering here. 
And so the Buddhist path becomes a path of removing craving, removing the dart, pulling the dart out of your heart. And it's kind of uh, beautiful, the idea of the dart. Yeah? Imagine having a dart in your heart. It's kind of unpleasant. It's not nice to have a dart in your heart, right? The dart is something that hurts. It's always there, always hurting you, always stuck there, always irritating, always painful. That is what craving is like. Craving is like this dart, this thing which is stuck inside of you, always making you feel ill at ease, always restless, always agitated, always unpleasant. There's a degree of suffering there, which you are so used to, you, be- be- you can't barely see it anymore. And then one day, when you go into that deeper state of samadhi, you start to realize the problem was there all along. But you were like that tadpole in water, you couldn't understand what was going on. And then you understand the connection between craving and suffering in a deeper way. The deep, actually, not in a deeper way, in a, sh- in a shallow way, this is only the beginning. Yeah? The deeper way is the connection between craving and rebirth. But in a basic sense, craving itself is suffering. Yeah? It is problem. It's like walking around with a dart in your heart. Yeah? And uh, so you start to see that problem. And that dart being unpleasant, uh, it is also hard to see. Yeah? This is actually a very interesting point, right? Uh, and this is exactly... Um, why this is so interesting here. It is hard to see that dart. Why is it so hard to see? And one of the main reasons why it is hard to see is because we don't understand that it is a dart, first of all. We don't understand that actually it is painful. But the second thing is that we not only don't we understand that it is painful, but actually we rejoice in craving it. Have you seen that in the world? Yeah, this is so common. People rejoice in desire and craving. Yeah, desire. Yeah, this kind of, all these desires and then you pursue them and you find happiness because of that desires and the craving kind of leads you on. Where would the world be without craving, right? We wouldn't be developing anything. The reason we have such a wonderful world. Wait a minute, wonderful world? <laughs> is this the Buddhist idea? Not really. The reason why we have civilization, the reason why we came out of the jungle and built skyscrapers and cities, yeah, because of craving, craving, good on your craving. Craving is a positive force in the world. Yeah. And this is how people think about desire and craving, yeah, as something positive that makes us develop, make us change, yeah, make us build up positive societies. Yeah. But from a Buddhist point of view, whether you live in the jungle or you live in a city, uh, makes almost no difference uh, because the deep-rooted problems uh, have not really been resolved. Uh, That is not the solution to the world to kind of create this kind of society. Uh, The solution in the world is much more profound than that. Uh, The real solution is to remove the entire craving and find real peace, real satisfaction. uh, And you start to understand what this means once you have some experience in meditation. uh, because once you have that, once craving is subdued a little bit, uh, you start to understand where the real solution is found. Uh. So it is hard to see because we identify with the craving. Yeah? We are the doers in the world. We are the makers of our own destiny, the makers of our own future. Uh. We are the creators of all the beautiful things in the world. Uh, yeah? All the art, all the things that exist in the world. Uh. And because we are the creators, uh, because we are... Uh, the, the, the makers of the future, we identify with that. Uh, this is what we, how we see ourselves. Uh, and I'm sure all of you can relate to that, yeah? that you identify with doing. Uh, 
when you do, you feel alive. When you feel that you are making something out of your career, you are creating something, a good family home maybe, there's a feeling of creating something. And that is very intoxicating because it feeds back into our sense of self. We feel alive when we create, when we do, when we indulge that feeling of sense of self within us. That is why it is so hard to see here. So craving and doing are very closely related to each other. Because without the craving, no doing. Without the doing, no indulging of the sense of self. These things all relate to each other. The Buddha actually says in one of the suttas, I think it's the Chachaka Sutta, Majjhimalika 146, I think it is. I can't remember now, something like that. And he says precisely that sometimes we identify with the craving itself because that is like identifying with sankhara. Sankhara, one of the five khandas, yeah? one of the, um, uh, the will, in a sense, inside. So you see the dart. Yeah? When struck by that dart, the craving, you run around in all directions. Yeah, all the activity in the world uh, comes from craving. Without craving, there would be very little activity going on in the world. Uh, people would usually just chill and relax and sit, close their eyes and do nothing. Yeah? And they would be so happy because of that. So all of this running around in the world uh, is, uh, comes because of that craving. Yeah? We run around we kind of aimlessly sometimes. We're not actually going anywhere. It feels like we're going somewhere. Actually, we're not going anywhere at all. Uh, and the only place we're going is to our graves. And uh, that is kind of, <laughs> I think Ajahn Brahm is the one who said that once. It's kind of really, it's a nice idea. We're just filling up the graveyards, yeah? not actually going anywhere. Because that world doesn't have any solution. That world doesn't have any final goal. It just goes round and round forever. And in the meantime, we are filling up the cemeteries. So the positive Buddhist outlook again. So just to keep things not too, not doesn't get too happy. You kind of keep it in check. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, all the activity in the world. What what is a uh, there's a famous Ajahn Brahm has this beautiful quote somewhere. I think it was Blaise Pascal, one of these famous these French philosophers, uh, who said that all the troubles in the world are caused by people not knowing how to sit still. Uh, <laughs> and that's kind of nice, yeah? It's a very Buddhist kind of idea. If you know how to sit still and you can meditate and just uh, be peaceful, sure, a lot of the problems in the world are going to disappear. Yeah? So uh, he, he had some, sometimes people, even though they're not Buddhist, they have some insight into things, yeah? It comes for a while, then it disappears again, unfortunately. Yeah. So um, when stuck by that heart, you run around in all directions, yeah? Craving is the cause of uh, suffering. Um, this is the second noble truth, the Samudaya Satcha. Uh, but when that same dart has been plucked out, uh, you neither run around nor sink down. Yeah, so when you pluck out the heart, the uh, dart of craving, and of course the dart of craving, this is now we're talking about the third noble truth. Uh, yeah, so we can see all the noble truths are coming in here, the first one, the second one, the third one. And when you pluck that out, the running around in the world stops. 
Why does it stop? Because you are satisfied, because you are happy within, because you are content, because you have found the answer to the meaning of life. There is nowhere else to go. There's nothing more to be done if you have found the answer to the meaning of life. You're just still, you're perfectly content. That is where we all really want to go at the end of the day. And then you neither run around nor do you sink down. Sinking down is like the negative consequences of having no craving. Yeah? Sometimes people think they have no craving, but actually all they have is apathy. Yeah? Yeah? Or, they, or they feel depressed and it's like can't do very much in life because they're too depressed to get their act together. Yeah? Or they feel the world is hopeless. That is the wrong way of overcoming craving. Actually, you haven't really overcome craving at all. Craving is still there. You still have a craving for happiness and all of these things. You've just kind of given up finding it yeah to some to some extent uh, that is kind of the sinking down uh. so when we give up craving we have to be careful not to give it up in the wrong way uh. the way to give up craving is to practice the noble eightfold path uh, to develop the spiritual happiness the profound happiness that ultimately leads to real contentment uh. that is the giving up of craving uh, not the wrong kind of giving up uh. Ultimately, the idea of giving up craving in the, one, in the wrong way is like committing suicide. You had enough of this whole world and you think, I'm going to give it all up, I'm going to commit suicide. But actually, that doesn't lead to any success, according to the Buddha's teachings. Because that committing of suicide is another kind of craving. It is the craving of making an end of suffering by doing, by doing it in the future. If I kill myself now, then I will not have any suffering afterwards. It's another way of projecting yourself into the future. And so because it is projecting yourself into the future, because it is based on craving, you can still get reborn. That is kind of the tragedy. Yeah, If you have a lot of suffering and you want to give it all up, actually, you just come back again so there isn't much point. Much better to then to stick it out and see if you can uh, do something positive in this life to make an end of all of these things. Uh, so these are the three first noble truths. Uh, yeah, right there uh, in the beginning of this thing, you can see the Buddha is gradually uh, resolving. Uh, the issues in life, understanding what life is about, understanding the causality, and because he understands the causality of things, how things are built up in samsara, because of that he also uh, understands gradually what needs to be done, what it is that we need to practice to be able to overcome these things. And so the next part of this long poem is all about the practice, yeah, which is the fourth noble truth. And... Um, I will probably look at that very briefly uh, this afternoon when I come back. Uh, but the main point now is to look at the idea of right use. I'll go through it fairly quickly. Uh, uh, and then at the very end of this poem, we come to the Arahant, the enlightened or awakened person, uh, and uh, seeing the results of that particular practice. Uh, so uh, that is all for now. So please carry on and enjoy yourself uh, and then have a nice meal. Uh, and we'll see you back in at two o'clock this afternoon. Uh.